Hello all, and welcome back to another episode of Movies and Us, a weekly gathering place filled with conversations about movies, stories, and connection. My name is Jennifer Hahn. And I'm Sarah Callen. And today we are going to be reviewing the film Godzilla Minus One, and we are joined by a very special guest, Michael from the Screeners Podcast. Michael, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thanks, uh, Jen and Sarah. Uh, my name is Michael Burgett. Uh, I like to describe myself as a sports nerd, a film and TV fan, a video game enthusiast, a GIF aficionado, and the host of the Screen Nerds podcast. And super excited to be on with y'all to talk uh, film and especially this film. This is super excited to be a part of the podcast with y'all. I love it. GIF aficionado was my personal favorite uh, label (laughs) that you had for yourself. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, Sarah, kick us off with an IMDb summary for Godzilla Minus One. Post-war Japan is at its lowest point when a new crisis emerges in the form of a giant monster baptized in the horrific power of the atomic bomb. All right, so let's kick off in Movies and Us tradition with our one-sentence summaries for Godzilla Minus One. Michael, as our guest, we'll have you share yours first. Go ahead. Godzilla Minus One is a definite plus of a film. Oh, well played. I love it. Oh my gosh. So good. So good. Sarah, what was your one sentence summary? Uh, Mine is drop bubbles, not bombs. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is we have severely underestimated the world saving powers of bubbles. I was right in line with you, Sarah. Nice. All right. Well, let's kick off with our uh, initial thoughts of Godzilla minus one. Michael, I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on why this was a plus one for you. Yeah. So obviously, if you have listened to my podcast or just know me personally, you know, I'm a huge Godzilla fan. I grew up as a young kid watching the old films on TV as, as early as I can remember watching Godzilla films it's always been a part of my life. And so anytime there's a Godzilla movie, I will eagerly watch it. And so I was super excited to check this one out, especially given the fact that the director of the film, who's also the writer, he's also the visual effects supervisor. He's a huge Godzilla fan himself. And so knowing that he had so much passion and so much love for the project uh, that he was putting into it, uh, made me super excited to see it. And, coming out of it uh i still have those feelings of it uh i if you Mm. follow me on twitter uh you will see the expression that i gave walking out of the theater essentially it was a gif (laughs) of bart simpson from the simpsons when he went to the quickie mart and had the super squishy entirely made out of syrup and drank it and had that jittery feeling that's kind of the feeling that i had walking out of uh, godzilla minus one I love it. I love the GIF aficionado is here, y'all. He is in the house. Uh, Perfect. We'll dive into some of those aspects that you really loved about this movie. I'm particularly keen to hear how you felt like this movie compared to some of the other Godzilla movies in the franchise and, you know, comparing and contrasting them. That'll be fun to talk about as a Godzilla fan. Uh, Sarah, your high level thoughts of Godzilla minus one. Yeah, uh, this movie is awesome. 
Uh, it's so much fun. It looks incredible. And they only, it was only like a $15 million budget or something like that, like super Insane. slim budget. And mm -hmm. this thing looks gorgeous. Uh, see it on the biggest screen that you can with the best sound system available because you want to be blown away by this. And so obviously like Godzilla looks so cool. All the Godzilla moments are amazing. But then there's also this really interesting story that's happening with the human characters. And there are some really important themes that this film explores. So I didn't expect it to be as deep and as thoughtful as it is. Uh, but this is this works as a monster movie and it works as just a movie uh which i really loved i do have some like questions and qualms about the ending that we can get into but that did not negatively impact my experience with this movie it was so much fun i would happily watch this again i want another godzilla minus one uh if that's in the cards i would be happy to watch it again this is a great time all right yeah and sarah usually doesn't ask for sequels or more of things in a franchise so that's when you know mm -mm, that's when you I know don't. but good. i just i want more godzilla he's so cool i mean who doesn't want more godzilla in their lives <laughs> yes. well maybe except tokyo yeah 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 they might, yeah, they might need fair. a break they might need a break yeah. from godzilla for a hot second <laughs> um I was pleasantly surprised at how much of an emotional core this movie has. If you've listened to past episodes of Movies and Us, especially when reviewing action films, uh, often I'll go on rants about how like it's possible to do great character-driven action movies. And oftentimes I feel like we we almost have to make a trade-off or have to pick. It's either really fun action or it's an emotional drama about a really amazing set of characters that are fully developed. And Godzilla Minus One is proof that you can do both. You really can do both. And I actually think that the strength of this movie is that everything that's happening in the whole uh, conflict and, and plot structure with Godzilla actually is so intertwined and heightens all of the emotional beats of this movie with our main characters. So uh, I was very impressed at that. I actually think this movie has quite a lot to say just um, in kind of the geopolitical dynamics and the state of um, the way that we do warfare now today. Like this movie has some ideas to share as well and some theses there. And if you don't want to turn on your brain and think about those, that's also fine that this movie is like visually just stunning and, and a good time too. So um, overall, I felt very positively about this movie. I think that uh, there's just like two little plot points that happened towards the end of the movie that I wished that they had done something slightly differently. Uh, but that is maybe just a me thing. And uh, I'm intrigued to talk about that too. I'm curious if they're similar or related to your qualm, Sarah, but maybe, maybe they're different. We'll find out. All right. Well, we'll include a spoiler alert here. So if you haven't seen Godzilla minus one, go check it out in theaters. We recommend going in with a blank slate, just experience the film before coming back to listen to the rest of this episode. All right, now we have full reign with this movie and we can talk about anything that happens. Uh, Michael, I'm intrigued to hear some of the things that you loved about Godzilla Minus One. And maybe um, now that the spoiler is there, you can kind of share more specifics. And then I'm also intrigued to hear how this compares to some of the other Godzilla movies in the franchise and what this one does differently that really worked for you. 
Yeah. Like I mentioned, the director slash writer slash visual effects supervisor is a huge Godzilla fan. And he mentioned two Godzilla films that really were an influence for him. Obviously, the 1954 original Godzilla was a huge influence on him. And Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah uh, from 2001 uh, was another film that was highly influential to him. And you see those elements in this film, obviously, especially the comparison to 1954 uh, Godzilla is very evident in a lot of this because in some ways this is a origin story it's not a reboot necessarily it's but it's a kind of a retelling of the origins of godzilla Uh, especially we see that with the beginning of the film when uh oh i uh koichi uh is our main human protagonist and we see him at the beginning of the film end up on odo island and if you know the 1954 film that's where Godzilla's uh, history and his legend was born, was, was in Odo Island. And so there are references like that kind of throughout the film of going, looking back to 54, but also in a, in a way of telling in a modern version uh, what this film is. And so it, there are a lot of little nods that, and I'm sure as we talk, they'll, uh, they'll, those things will be brought up into it, but Really, this film is a period piece, which is interesting because there's not another Godzilla film that's essentially a a period piece. Even the 54 version is a what what was then a modern film. Uh, But I think because the fact that this is a period piece, uh, it's able to tell a unique story because of the time setting, uh, because of the way the characters are and, and where what they're dealing with and both the human element and the the monster element uh it it lends itself to telling a fun interesting unique story but it also lend uh lends itself to those references like the 54 godzilla like the 2001 uh godzilla film and, and some other references he even the director says that uh he was influenced by jaws and uh Hayao Miyazaki films so he was there was a lot of creativeness that went into this film that's amazing that that you can you can sense the director's kind of fondness for this franchise and and the reverence that he has for uh the entire Godzilla uh, uh, body of work that's amazing that's amazing um Sarah, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear about some of those things that you felt like this movie really worked well for you. And then maybe you can talk a little about some of those qualms that you had towards the end. I'm intrigued to hear about those. Yeah, I, I think I was just so impressed, again, just at that emotional core, you know, and, and, and that the, the storyline of, of the human characters so cleanly parallels Godzilla like I feel like sometimes characters in action movies like they go on a journey but it's not always directly associated with the the battles that are happening or you know the action that's happening it's almost like they happen on two parallel lines but in this movie they're so intentionally in intertwined and I was also impressed that even though our main protagonist is like he is on this mission. He is consumed with defeating Godzilla. I didn't get 
annoyed by that. Like sometimes when the protagonist is like, uh, like going after his white whale, I'm just like, oh, just okay. I'm bored of this. I'm bored of this revenge tale. <laughs> well, I think one of the things, Sarah, is you're right. You, you don't expect the human story to be as compelling as the monster story because there are a lot of Godzilla films where yeah. the the monster stories are compelling and interesting because you have mm -hmm. those big kaiju fights mm -hmm. and the human story is just kind of there and mm -hmm. sometimes it's interesting but then sometimes it just drags the story down uh we see that a lot with the the monster verse with legendary uh good films i enjoy them but sometimes the human stories are hit or hit or miss uh but here and I think, again, it lends itself back to the 54 version, which is that human story, while at some points was kind of, you know, melodramatic a little bit, this one, I think, really emphasizes both the time period and the era. Because when you're coming out of post-war Japan, the reason why this film is named Godzilla Minus One is because the country was at zero. It had been decimated by the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so the country was literally trying to rebuild itself back up. And you had people like Koichi who were devastated, not just the fact of the, that he lost all his family, his home was destroyed, but he was, like you said, a kamikaze pilot who didn't follow through. And in that culture, in that society, kamikaze pilots were revered because they were giving of themselves. They were sacrificing for honor. That, that, that was seen as an honor to give of your life for the emperor, for, for the country. And the fact that he didn't do that, and we see that scene when he comes back to what was left of his family's home and his neighbor looks at him and is just aghast that he's back there and even, you know, berates him and saying, if you had only done your job, meaning that if you had committed suicide by Kamikaze, that we would have won the war. And so he carries all the guilt of survivor's remorse, of being dishonored and then the fact of being on Odo Island and you know having the plane with the guns and not shooting at proto Godzilla because Godzilla hadn't reached super saiyan form at that point with the hydrogen bomb being dropped on him uh, and him not shooting and, and flinching there and uh the having that as guilt too because all the uh, mechanics there on Odo Island, except for one died. And so he carries that guilt with him. So all of these different things that in a lot of other eras of Godzilla films wouldn't have existed or even had dealt with, we see that play out through this film. And it makes for a really interesting story because he's almost a reluctant hero because he, you know, he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to shoot anything because he just freezes up. And yet it takes through the course of the film, you know, developing, you know, relationships with Noriko, you know, developing relationships with the mind sweeping crew that he, you know, develops this desire to 
protect those he, you know, really has a found relationship, a found family with. Uh, and then that's when he has the real gumption to go after Godzilla. It's not something that he goes after immediately because he carries all this PTSD, all of this guilt, all of this dishonor that's a part of him. But we see that through the course of the film. And really, like you said, it makes for a compelling story. And that's not necessarily from the human element that we get with Godzilla. I love what you brought up there around the the kind of victorious moment and that ending, because you're so right that it's it's partially like, yay, we've defeated the big bad Godzilla that was coming for destruction. But beyond that, more importantly, it's that victory of him stepping up, stepping out and into something that was hard that he was afraid of and showing that courage, uh, des desiring to protect the people that he cares about. Like that is a victory for the character too. And the alignment of the kind of action and uh, the victory that happens against Godzilla with the character's victorious moment, that's that like real intertwining of both the emotional core and the action sequences that really make that final moment so exciting and so thrilling. And I think great action movies know how to weave these two things so tightly together that we feel just kind of the overwhelming uh, sensation of both of those emotions, both for these people that are now temporarily safe from Godzilla because we see him begin to regenerate at the end there, but also for the character, that that person that we've been getting to know and following over the course of the film, um, that's really emotionally satisfying. And I think something that I, I found really smartly done at this film that uh, Prey does really well, which is amazing action and a film with some, some really amazing emotional core and, and um, moments uh, in that movie is that they really give plenty of time for us to get to know this character. So Michael, like we were sharing about in the big and um, your thoughts around the beginning of the film, us really getting to see those moments where he goes back to his old village and he gets berated and he begins to bear those burdens of shame. Like we really spent enough time there and the movie lets that breathe fully before throwing us into any action sequence with Godzilla. Like we have that opening action sequence, but then we spend quite a bit of time, I think at least 30 minutes or so, just getting to know this person, seeing him begin to rebuild a life, seeing him begin to get to know people in his community and form relationships. Like there's no sign of Godzilla at all for quite a long time. And I think that was so wisely done to pace it that way, to really anchor this in the person and the character we're following before we get to all the the big flashy action stuff that, that really then lands that emotional gut punch at the end. Yeah, and again, I, it's funny, keep going back to 54 parallels. Uh, in, in the 54 film, technically you don't see Godzilla until nearly halfway through, but mm. you see the elements of Godzilla's destruction that take place. And that's kind of the same thing here is you see Godzilla's, you know, evidence of him. And even in that film, he's not in this film too. He's not a villain. He's, he's an antagonist. You know, if you look at it from the protagonist and antagonist type of uh, view, but he's not a villain. He, he's not just doing things solely out of pure evil. He's, he's viewed as essentially nature and 
uh, the destructive nature, uh, destructive force of nature and how, uh, you know, we as humans get caught up in that sometimes. And that was one of the allegories in the 54 version was, you know, this was the result of the atomic bomb and the atomic testing. And, you know, this, you know, Godzilla is the result of that and all the destructive force in nature that comes out of it. Uh, that's kind of the same thing here that the, the director here is telling is the fact that Godzilla's not the villain. It's just, he is a force. It is, you know, a force of nature that goes through and, you know, those forces of nature, you know, we see it with hurricanes and tornadoes and things like that. They're destructive and they leave, you know, a widespread uh, mess wherever it goes, but it's not, pure evil that's in it it's just the way nature is and so that we see that with godzilla here as well is the destructive nature of godzilla that goes through odo island that goes through tokyo multiple times uh but it's not godzilla is evil and i i think sometimes you know the best godzilla films for me are the ones that are either he's a hero but usually those are ones where He's fighting against another kaiju, but these type of films where he's not the villain and he's not the hero, but he's just a force of nature that, you know, the humans have to deal with. And, you know, sometimes it's uh, reflective of their own inner struggles that they deal with uh, as a as a course of dealing with Godzilla, or sometimes it's just Godzilla is a threat and we have to take care of it. Uh, But either way of those, it's, those are the type of stories I think that really lend itself to great storytelling. Not to say that the fun kaiju fights aren't uh, because they're fun in their own right. But when you have these allegorical stories of uh, the atomic bomb and and the destructive nature of it on a society, uh, those type of stories also lend itself to good storytelling. Yeah. I, I love that you bring that up. Like, I <laughs> I always feel weird when I watch a Godzilla movie because I always feel so bad for Godzilla. I'm like, he's just a, he, I always feel bad for him. I'm like, he's just a big guy. He's misunderstood. He was probably like napping at the bottom of the ocean and then you woke him up and now you're shooting him with guns. Like, of course he's going to react to that. Just leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in the, even in the first scene on Odo Island, yeah, really, I mean, he attacks the one guy granted that's in yeah. the, the light thing, but Again, he was shining a light on him, so it's like, yeah, that's how would you feel someone to that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, and then he really just kind of stomps around, and it's not until the one guy, you know, mistakenly fires at him, and then everybody else starts shooting at him that he really goes on the rampage. So he's just taking a stroll, having a leisurely walk <laughs> on the island, and then you know everybody gets up in his business and. You know, we see the results of it, but he's not a bad person or he's not a bad dinosaur or whatever. He, it, you know, he's just a part of nature and it's just doing his thing. Okay, great. That, that makes me feel better because that's usually the perspective that I bring to these types of movies. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe I'm just watching this wrong, but you're right. Like this movie really does make it clear that sure, he has destroyed a lot of places and he killed a lot of people but that wasn't 
he didn't have malice when he did it. He's just a big dinosaur who is in a place that he doesn't want to be. And I, I love just how smartly written this film is to have this geopolitical conversation and, and this, this, I don't know, thoughtful exercise about what war means, what its costs are, and to to wrap it all in this really, really great monster movie. I, I think it's so impressive that they were able to pull all of this together and, and have it work so well on so many levels. Yeah, and again, the the idea of the time and the setting of this film with it being right after World War II. And we have, like you said, the geopolitical aspects of it because the fact that Japan is still kind of picking up the pieces during this time period, if you know uh, world history of uh, you know, immediately after World War II, America was in Japan. Uh, the American Navy was there. Douglas Marth MacArthur, who gets mentioned in the film, is kind of the you know, head leader of the government there sort of is kind of helping to rebuild the Japanese government. And because of that, you know, Japan is not really able to fully protect itself. It's having to rely on America to do that. And so when Godzilla shows up, they're not necessarily able to really protect themselves, but at the same time, the Americans don't want to get involved because if they do, it's mm -hmm. seen as a threat to the Soviets. So I, that was one thing as a history guy, I really appreciated how they wrote that in because of that time period, because in the 54 version, the Americans were already gone at that point. Japan was really kind of fully established. We have the Japan self-defense force that kind of goes after Godzilla and in, in protecting the country. But here we don't have that. It's the Americans that are supposed to be helping, you know, protect the Japanese. And because they don't want to get involved with having the worry about the Soviets getting involved, they say that MacArthur sends these decommissioned vessels to kind of help protect. And it's really the private citizens that are having to do the work of protecting the, the people of Japan from Godzilla. Yeah, I think I think that detail and it's it's not the, the movie doesn't dwell on that, but there is that detail around Godzilla being uh, kind of mutated and and evolved due to nuclear testing from the US. And so for the rest of the movie after that, he kind of is an allegory and, or a metaphor in a lot of ways, if you want to think metaphorically about this right of what what does godzilla represent and i think that the the you know detail around godzilla's atomic breath that immediately destroys and absolutely like flatten cities like there's no coincidence there the the intentionality of that detail and um the consequences of these foreign powers looking to protect themselves we really get to see the way that that ultimately impacts and the consequences that that has for the civilians that are boots on the ground having to face um, the effects of that. So I love that there are kind of many layers to this movie. If you want to watch it as a monster movie, that's all there too. And the big action set pieces are there too. But like you mentioned, Michael, there is these 
these layers beneath the surface that the movie nods to. And if you want to think down that path, you can around um, the, the geopolitical commentary that this movie is also looking to communicate and at least just to, to lead our minds to think about. And I loved, I loved all of that. I think anything that can uh, entertain while also communicate uh, ideas is, is always a really powerful combination. And this movie clearly has ideas. It's not looking to just be a, a, you know, spectacle to behold. There's, there's actually a lot more brimming beneath the surface here. Yeah, and that makes for the best film. You know, when you have a clear thesis and and you want to communicate these things while also entertaining, and and I think that's one of the cool things about uh, like the sci-fi genre and even you know monster movies is that you can do that when we are engrossed in this story and and just in awe at the spectacle. Uh, but we can also be taking in these these concepts and these ideas to to dwell on later. Like, this is one of those that that you'll want to think about, that you'll want to research after watching, which is is crazy because it's a Godzilla movie. But there's so much depth here. Ugh, this movie's so good. Yeah, that that to me is again why I compare this film so much to the '54 original film because there are those elements of seeing Godzilla as the you know embodiment of the hydrogen bomb, the atomic bomb, and how that destruction you know affects people and the aftermath and uh, just the you know the development of how people you know cope with that. You know, we see you know throughout this film how there are multiple times there are attacks, whether it's you know out at sea or in Tokyo and how people are dealing with it. And, you know, in the original film, they were, you know, they had just come out of it. It had been less than a decade uh, from Hiroshima and Nagasaki that these people were experiencing, you know, this film on the big screen and having those thoughts of, you know, having loved ones, having people that, you know, they knew personally that had been affected by, uh, the atomic bomb, you know, they knew how that was personally in, you know, to see it on the big screen. And so they knew very well how, you know, a, a monster film, a kaiju film can speak to those, you know, really heavy elements of story. And I think that's one thing that's great about this film is that it, it echoes back to it, but it also tells it in a fresh and a unique perspective because it, while it has those similar beats to that film, it tells it in such a interesting and a unique perspective. I think a lot of it because of how it is viewed in the time period that it's in, but also the characters, because a lot of these characters, they, they're not one dimensional. Like everybody that we see in this film, whether it's Koichi, whether it's Norika, whether it's, uh, the captain or doc or the kid like or or the the mechanic all these different people have three three dimension elements to them and they all have their growth throughout the film too it's not just koichi that has that kind of journey through the film each one of these characters has their moment to shine and has their moment of growth that we see and i 
I really appreciated that because, you know, sometimes, you know, even in, you know, a quote unquote regular film, you don't have like all these characters that have their own story arcs and developments. You know, I remember listening to, to y'all talk about the holdovers and how the characters in that film didn't, the, the three main characters didn't all have the kind of story arcs that you, you know, you wanted to see, uh, and you know that was only three characters, and I feel like with this film, there's like five or six characters that really had that development of, you know, we see them at point A and where they started at, but then through the course of the film, we see them all have their growth and development to where they're on the other side of you know Godzilla, and for the most part, they're all better for it. Whether it's you know really stepping up and making you know a stand for you know, stopping Godzilla, whether it's developing a plan, whether it's coming to the rescue at the last moment, uh, or whether it's just simply taking care of a, a young child who lost her parents in the war. You know, all these different characters having their own story arcs really just, you know, again, makes this film not just a good Godzilla film, but a good film, period. And I love that there's so much of that character growth and it ties into the story. So like one of my favorite moments was the the mechanic, you know, we, we meet him early on in the film and he is like, no, you killed my men. You are the reason why they died. And then by the end, you know, he reluctantly comes along to help him fix up this plane and and then make sure that he knows that there's an ejector seat and and our protagonist has been like no i am i am going to do the honorable thing and i'm going to sacrifice myself i'm going to fulfill my duty as a kamikaze pilot and and the mechanic who probably in you know years ago would have been like yeah man it's about time but now he's like no i want you to live and so i i love that we know that the mechanic has been on this journey of of acceptance forgiveness like whatever his journey was and and that character development directly impacts the story and i i think again like this is just so well written I love that you brought up that moment too, because I think it's also a testament to the screenwriting here that it, it echoes a parallel conversation that um, Koichi has with Noriko, who who has a similar story and and battling the survivor's guilt, and Noriko encourages him that like there is a reason that you are still here and you have the opportunity to create purpose and meaning for your life and at that moment, because it happens, I think somehow like somewhere midway in the movie, he's not ready to really receive that yet, or doesn't really like, he doesn't almost doesn't believe it. He hears the words, but he doesn't believe it. And you see that come back again um, in that conversation that we flash back to with the mechanic around him really beginning to truly receive and accept that there is purpose to his life and he can begin to cast off some of that survivor's guilt that has been haunting him for so long. So just kind of the the interweaving and the layering of this movie. Um, I love that what you shared, Michael, around each character having an arc, some of them smaller and some of them larger, but they all kind of are, you know, like well orchestrated together. And um, this movie's so efficient in that way because there are a lot of characters and somehow each moment is used 
very efficiently and each character moment is so full of meaning and and purpose so i feel like uh, that's hard to do i think as a screenwriter it's hard to give one character an amazing character arc that we're satisfied by let alone so many of these side characters as well but that interweaving of the character moments and the themes i thought was so good yeah yeah i one that really of the secondary stories that really kind of resonated with me was the relationship between doc captain and kid uh, of the the boat the minesweeper boat uh, that koichi gets on and works out of and and you see that camaraderie that develops through through them you have doc who was you know a former navy engineer it was kind of the smart one you have the captain who is (laughs) at the same time he's anti-government he also was you know honorable and serving in the war and then you have the kid who was young enough that he wasn't called up to be in the war but he has all these dreams and visions of wanting to go to war and we see especially with those three the kid the captain and doc how much they you know have this kind of friendship and and bond that Doc and Captain, you know, really look out for the kid. And, you know, multiple times the kid's like, ah, I really wanted to go to war. And, ah, I wish I could have, you know, served and, you know, been a part of it. And, and the, the two older guys, they repeatedly will look at kid and be like, no, you didn't want to be a part of it. Even to the point where, you know, after the, the big, you know, kind of, planning stage of how we're going to take down Godzilla and they're walking out of the building and kids all like, you know, what, what am I going to do? And they're like, you're not involved. You're staying here. And he's like, but I want to go to war. I deserve, you know, it's because he looks at it as war type of moment with it, with going after Godzilla and they turn and look at him and essentially say, be glad that you weren't in the war. And I, I think sometimes especially you know we you know we see war films and some of them lionize fighting and battle and war and some of them don't but i think the the fact that you have a character like doc who is you know a naval officer and you have captain who you know served in the war you have those two guys you know essentially tell the kid you know be glad that you didn't have to go through that that you didn't have to experience those horrors uh, to see all the you know terror and the destruction and and everything that they went through and and i i think even in a film like this i think it's it's good to have those moments where you know we're not you know celebrating and lionizing war we're not celebrating and lionizing battle it, it's something that we deal with and it's something that happens but if you don't have to go through it if you don't have to experience it you know, be glad and celebrate that. One of the thoughts that I had um, in response to yours was that I think that the choice for this this film to be set in post-war Japan, which Michael, you've shared quite a bit about, um, made some really great points around like this being a period piece and the time and place that this is chosen, I think is so fitting because immediately there's 
there's emotional stakes for every character. And so um, something that we were talking about earlier in the episode around Koichi being a reluctant hero in a lot of ways, that ending scene where um, they're basically saying, hey, we understand all that you all have already been through. We know this is hard. We know that you've seen so much. We know that you have families, but we need your help. You know, and the, and so for the ones that choose to stay and fight and protect and take care of their people, uh, man, they're all, in a lot of ways, they're all reluctant heroes, which I thought was just such a beautiful way for one, this filmmaker to honor kind of the resilience and um, the, the kind of spiting spirit of his people, but also just, I mean, emotionally for the film itself, it really works quite well. Like that scene where it's kind of that rally and cry, the locker room scene of like, let's go out there and do this thing together. Um, there, there was a lot more emotion packed into it because of all the context that we know that these people have gone through already. Yeah, and if you remember in that scene, they don't shame the people that leave. Like, they all understand, you know, because they mention, yeah. like, some of you have families, mm -hmm. some of you have, you know, lives that, you know, you have to go back to, to, you know, to help rebuild. And so none of them get shamed. You know, a, a lot of these other times, you know, these kind of war films and stuff, you have that scene of, you know, if you're not with a step forward and, you know, you, you may have that shaming moment of, well, they're, you know, they're not cut out to, to be with us to fight or whatever. But here it's, they, they make it a point to not shame these people because they understand, they know what kind of a sacrifice it is. And so it even more so elevates the ones that do choose to fight because they understand the sacrifice. They're not, you know, they're not throwing their lives away recklessly, but they're doing it because they understand why they're fighting and why they're protecting and understanding that the dangers that come with it. And I love that, that like rallying cry, you know, that like, yeah, we can do it moment comes after the people who wanted to leave had left. And so again, like you were just saying, Michael, it's not this like pressuring thing, but it's like, okay, yeah, we've all chosen to be here. Okay, now let's stir each other up and let's get ready to go into battle. So again, it's just that, that, that honor. Uh, and you can tell that, you know, Japan is built on such a culture of honor and you see that running throughout the film. And I think this is a great example of one of those moments. And I feel like it's really easy in these like man versus beast films to really tap into that, like that, you know, just fighting spirit that we often see that, that like, let's go conquer what insert beast name here. And uh, I think the, a theme that we were talking about earlier around Godzilla not being the enemy, but just a force that needs to be dealt with. And, and um, it's out of the protection for their people that they're fighting, not necessarily to use all like violence and, and all these like big forces to, to, play up that tension and that conflict it's we really feel like it's out of that desire like their motivation isn't to go and dominate their motivation is to protect and preserve the things that they have and that they've already like there's so much that's been lost so the things that they have now are even more precious for them that is remaining and i love that they they really leaned into that spirit and not the like you know 
let's go. The toxic side of this movie would just be, let's go demolish Godzilla. And we, I feel like we've seen versions of that. And I appreciate that this film takes a much more uh, human-centered approach and like taps into the things that really um, we, we celebrate as human beings and not the kind of desire for conflict and tension and, and you know, dominance, which I, I really appreciate. One thing that I wanted to bring up with y'all, and you, especially because of the fact that you mentioned it in your one sentence summaries, was about the bubbles and how and how 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 yes. how cool how how honestly cool the scientific aspect of them fighting Godzilla is. Like it's a logical, makes sense approach to attack Godzilla, and because it's not a weapon either. Like if you you hear the explanation that Doc gives, you know they were using these Freon canisters to essentially sink Godzilla, and the pressure of the undersea would kill would supposedly kill him. And if that didn't work, they had the balloons to then lift him up. And so the fact that <laughs> you know they're not using a weapon, you know the fifty four version, mm. you know Dr. Sarazawa was developing the oxygen destroyer. And there was fear of mm. it, you know, getting into the wrong hands. And so that that was that element of how they were going to defeat Godzilla. But it was essentially a weapon to defeat Godzilla. But this time around, it's, you know, basic science. It's if you understand what happens when you go down to the depths of the ocean too quickly, you know, and the fact that two is if you go back up too quickly, you know, you get the bends and, you know, you have to be in a pressurized chamber to be able to go back and forth uh, successfully without, you know, killing yourself. Uh, they use that as the means to try and take out Godzilla. And I thought that that was a really cool and interesting uh, way to combat Godzilla that wasn't a weapon, but it was a means of defense. And, you know, the fact that, you know, we got the bubbles, as y'all put it, it was just kind of funny. <laughs> so good. The power bubbles, man. So good. So good. And and I don't know if anyone else's brains went here, but when the little float, the, the mattresses, the, the big floaty things all were uh, deployed and it's around Godzilla's waist, I was like, look at him in a tutu. Yeah, no. yeah. I thought it was like a there. like a hula skirt or something. Yeah, <laughs> so good. Well, you could also look at it as like one of those flotation devices as well. <laughs> yeah. All right. Any other last thoughts about Godzilla minus one before we wrap up? There were a couple of things uh, that I wanted to bring up. You know, I mentioned earlier about how there's that parallel between 54 and this one. Obviously, you mentioned Odo Island, where Godzilla or Gojira was named. There's also a scene, and you notice it in the first attack through the city, where you have those reporters, if you remember, on top of the building that were reporting Godzilla as he was attacking yeah. through. That's actually, mm. if you have seen the 54 film, there is a scene similar to that where there were reporters you know, stationed up on a tower and they were reporting, even the Raymond Burr version, that's what he's doing. He's reporting as Godzilla is attacking and then Godzilla comes and knocks down the building, kills those reporters and uh, in the American version hurts Steve Martin, Raymond Burr. 
and we see that similarly here is you have these reporters that are up on the building they're reporting what godzilla does godzilla's you know attacks the building ends up killing these reporters that's another you know if you've seen those films you know the callback but even if you haven't it's just another reminder of godzilla's destruction going through there and then there's a question that i wanted to ask the both of you there are two scenes and we've mentioned one of them already uh with uh koichi and the ejection seat but i was wondering if when you were watching the film did you catch those two little twists that happened as they were going or did they come as a surprise to you i'll say for me i caught one of them but i didn't catch the other one until it happened what was the other one the other one was finding out that noriko was alive no, you know he gets the telegram no. and no. him and uh, akio rushes to the hospital and then finds her alive you know because there was that presumption when the attack happened that she died which was you know his motivation throughout the second half of the film but then come to find out that no she's actually alive mm -hmm. well sarah's usually great at predicting movies quite well um and kind of having an eye for those so i i had a feeling that they were going to keep him alive i I didn't think that they were going to keep Noriko alive. And that's my one qualm with this movie is that I, I, while it leaves you feeling all types of happy things and warm fuzzies, I do think that it, I, I appreciate when a film will just, you know, be willing to like really make the stakes stick. And I think that him being alive and that, that whole emotional backstory with the mechanic was already so meaningful for me that I didn't need to also see the reunion of a family. It was really sweet, but I think it it ends on a like much more saccharine note um, versus if they had just let us continue to believe that he did all of this out of the desire to honor the person that he loved and um, he now sees meaning for him to live and he's going to provide for this daughter that they have, like I would have felt I actually think that that would be more meaningful for me. This is, I'm also the person that loved all the Rogue One sacrifices that were made where a bunch of people die for the bigger cause. Uh, because I think that, that there's just like a lot of depth there. Uh, but I also know that this is a Godzilla monster movie and we can do the happy ending too. Uh, but Sarah, I'm curious, did you see those two twists coming? And if so, how did you feel about them? Yeah. Uh, yes i i saw them both coming i so the ejector seat one because they mention when they're talking about how uh like the 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 government didn't take good care of them one of the things they mention is like planes without an ejector seat um and so then when the mechanic sees that plaque on the seat i was like oh that's an ejector seat okay and then he says one more thing and I'm like, oh, he's telling him about the ejector seat. Okay, that's cool. Uh, it took me a little bit longer. Uh, it was when the telegram was delivered to the neighbor. I was like, oh, no, she better not still be alive. Uh, and she was. That is also my qualm about this film. Um, I think I would have been okay either way. I... <laughs> This is this sounds so bad, but I I wanted Akiko <laughs> to have one parent, but not the other, basically. Okay, I'm 
what I'm going to say might actually help with both of y'all's qualms with that. Uh, I'll, I'll get to I'll get to that in a second. But you know, I mentioned one twist I saw coming, but the other one I didn't. I did see the ejector seat, and the reason why, and you brought it up, Sarah, was the comment about not having ejector seats in there. But as soon as they went to the wide shot of the the plane and you don't hear the dialogue of what's being said, that was the moment where I was like, they're putting the ejector seat in. So I was like, I, I saw that one coming immediately. But the telegram, at first, I thought it was him saying, you know, sending a telegram to the neighbor saying, you know, just to be, you know, just as a clarity. Now, you know, looking back on it now, obviously, I know it's Norico, you know, sending a response. But at the time, I thought it was maybe like the, you know, the the technician or somebody else just saying, you know, no, he's not going to go sacrifice himself. But uh, that last scene, and you mentioned it as, as kind of a qualm, I didn't necessarily pick up on it at the time, uh, but on reading, uh, you know, just kind of refresh myself because obviously I'm going to go see it again, but I haven't yet. But if you remember, there's a close-up that they do of them hugging and you see Noriko's neck there's a black spot that's on her neck and that that black spot is to show radiation sickness so what mm. that is entailing is yes she lived but she's also dying so it it's another one of those telltale things of you know the destruction that Godzilla does and the destruction of the atomic bomb it doesn't always you know happen immediately there are those after effects and that's another one of those things in the 54 film uh, with uh, the beginning of the film, you see the atomic bomb or what's supposed to be the atomic bomb, but it's actually Godzilla uh, attacking the lucky dragon number five. It's a similar incident to what happened in real life where there was a fishing boat that gets out too close to one of the atolls and there was a test of one of the bombs and the ones that survived on that boat eventually died of radiation sickness. And you see that with God in the 54 film, anytime there was any kind of survivor, they eventually died. And that's one of the things with this film, I think that the director was kind of teasing that, was that yeah, Noriko survived, but she's also having to deal with this and that it could eventually kill her if there was a sequel that happened. So I don't know if that necessarily helps your qualms, with the ending, but I, I think that that's a way to kind of explain that it isn't perfectly tied up in a bow, I guess you could say. It definitely helps my qualm because I think it, it tempers the sweetness of that ending. As sweet as that reunion is, there is kind of a bittersweetness almost like they get to finally express, especially Koichi to finally express how much she means to her. I feel like that was one thing that he would have lived with regret about had he not had that moment and you see him beginning to realize that after he's realized he's lost her uh i just wish it was maybe like a little bit clearer i don't know maybe maybe that was clear to a lot of other people and i just missed it but i didn't catch that so i would have loved to have caught that i think it would have uh, maybe changed the way that i saw that moment um and kind of the mix of emotion in that moment which is actually great that's i mean i, I appreciate that a lot more 
All right. Well, this was our review and discussion of Godzilla Minus One. You can find it available out in theaters. And as we mentioned earlier, try and see it on the biggest screen that you can with the best audio and sound quality. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Movies and Us. And a big thank you to you, Michael, for joining us for all of the conversations around Godzilla Minus One. It was awesome to hear from a true Godzilla fan. Michael, where can people find more of you and your work on the internet? Yeah, you can find me over at the Screen Nerds Podcast. Uh, As I always love to say about the Screen Nerds Podcast, it's a podcast for film lovers, by film lovers, celebrating all the films that we enjoy, whether it's new films out in theaters or favorite films and thinking of and sharing those memories of, of rewatching those films. And you can find me anywhere that you get your podcasts, just search screen nerds podcast and on your socials, just search screen nerds podcast. I always say, hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, hit that follow button and join in the conversation. Awesome. And we will include all of that information and links for the Screen Nerds podcast for where you can connect with Michael and follow more of his content with the Screen Nerds podcast online. All right. Well, our name, Movies and Us, sums it up. We're all about movies and the powerful ways we can connect with each other and the world around us. This podcast is about all of us and our shared stories. Everyone is welcome here, and we're so glad that you spent time with us today. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you tune into your favorite shows. Drop us a rating and review, letting us know your thoughts about Godzilla Minus One. You can connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Movies and Us Pod or email us at Movies and Us Pod at gmail.com. We will be back next week with another film review here on the Movies and Us podcast. We hope you have an amazing week and we'll see you very soon.